to uh, acknowledge that our, our Cactus Campus and our venue across campus, our chapel, are joining us right now uh, for our time in the Word. Uh, I love the fact that uh, God has blessed our church in such a way that we uh, have multiple venues and even multiple campuses, but we all gather as one church for our time in the Word and in our time of teaching. And before I pray and then dive in, I want to underline an announcement that was made here and at our other uh, venues, and that's that you know our church is involved in a lot of different missions endeavors. I mean, we hope that every one of us at some point will engage in missions, missions meaning uh, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, loving other people in the name of Jesus, propagating the gospel outside of just our little Jerusalem here. And, uh, and so we're involved in Mexico and uh, Asia and Africa and the Middle East. And, and about eight years ago, we decided to also get involved in Europe as a mission field, which is kind of strange because Europe isn't a third world country. They don't need us to dig ditches or build buildings or anything like that or you know, provide wells or things like that. But, but Europe, as some of you know, is truly a mission field, especially as we're celebrating here the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, Europe's in deep trouble when it comes to spirituality and the gospel. Uh, church attendance is, is way down, single digits. Uh, there are generations now that know nothing of God, nothing of the Bible. When the European Union uh, wrote their documents for the European Union, they made it very clear that they wanted to mention nothing about God and nothing about their Christian heritage in the formational doctrines of the European Union. Secularism has gripped Europe by the throat. And so about eight years ago, we decided that we're going to add that to one of our mission fields because they need the gospel and Jesus. And I pioneered that with our church and we're involved in three main areas there. And one of them you heard about earlier, and that's the European Leadership Forum. It meets every year in Wisła, Poland. It's the largest diverse gathering of uh, amazing Christian leaders every year across Europe. Uh, 600 leaders from 40 different Western and Eastern European countries, and it's made up of academicians, artists, mission leaders, pastors, uh, business people, and they gather for this conference for a week to talk about and pray about how they can affect Europe with the gospel. And we take about 30 volunteers, and I go over, uh, I'm going again this May, to uh, help assist in putting on that conference. So it's very different than most mission trips. You're not putting on an Awana club, you're not swinging a hammer, you're actually holding a camera, you're driving a van, you're helping with registration, you're, you're listening to lectures. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of mission trip, but it's the same goal, and that is to help uh, the gospel go forth in dark places. And, uh, and, and so if that interests you at all, there's a table uh, here in a cactus that you can sign up at, and we'd love to have you join us for that. And if not that one, I'd encourage all of you to go on at least a mission trip. Okay, how's this for a goal? Before you die. Go on a mission trip before you die. And, and, and here's what I can promise you. If you go on one before you die, you'll go on another one before you die. And then another one and another one. Because I've never met anybody who went on a mission trip that wasn't changed. I call it an out-of-environment experience because you're out of your environment. God does something in you as well as through you. And you're going to want to go back. Just trust me. So... Uh, we do about 30 of these a year, so I encourage you to take advantage of that. So enough of the infomercial. We're here for the word. Uh, let's pray and then 
think you're going to be glad we're going in the word today. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that both of those came wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, that his Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, uh, exists still today and empowers us when we talk about your truth and your word. And so I pray, God, that as we open up your book now, as we talk about this very important topic to our lives and even in your economy, this idea of success, God, I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray you help us understand rightly what your word says, and our response back will be to live it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. So I'll never forget this story. The year was 1984, and the man's name was Pete. I actually asked his permission to share his story with you today. Uh, he lives in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Pete's this guy here, the guy in the middle in the, uh, the, 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 I don't know what color that is, but it looks pink, a pink shirt. And, and, and you can tell this is a ballpark. Pete is an avid Detroit Tigers fan. This is a Detroit Tigers logo, Detroit Tigers. And, and this is one of the reasons I hate going to stadiums, by the way, is he doesn't look very comfortable, if you ask me. I mean, he looks like he's in a, a coach airline seat, and that's how it is in these stadiums. But, but he'll put up with that because Pete loves the Detroit Tigers. And, and in the year 1984, the Tigers, some of you might remember, were in the World Series. And Pete at that time was just moving to Detroit. He was one of the top advertising executives uh, really in the Midwest, the vice president of a huge firm. Uh, he had a beautiful house near Lake St. Clair. He was driving top-of-the-line cars. He had a beautiful wife and three young boys. By anybody's standard, he had it all. And, and now the Tigers were in the World Series. And Pete tells the most amazing story that, that he went and saw the Tigers win the World Series that year, and the, the city erupted. There were people running through the streets, so excited that their team had finally won the World Series. And Pete was all caught up in that and a part of that. And at one point, obviously, the celebration started to die down a little bit, so he got in his car. And when he got in his car, it must have been a well-made car, because as he tells the story, he shut the door of the car, and all of a sudden, everything was very, very quiet. So he could see the streets and people still running and screaming, but it was very quiet inside of his car. And, and, and as he tells the story, it hit him like a ton of bricks, that he had finally arrived at achieving all the goals that he had set for his life. He had the wife, he had the kids, he had the job, he had the money, he had the prestige, he had the job, he had the house. He had everything that he had set out to do as a young man, and now the Tigers had won the World Series. And that was one of his huge goals in life, too, to see the Tigers win the World Series. And as it hit him that everything that he had set out to do had finally come to fruition, he said he never felt more empty in his entire life. That he was stunned that he had reached the pinnacle of success and that emptiness had invaded his soul. And he didn't know what to make of that. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about his journey when we wrap up here in a little bit. But here's my point for right now. I think that Peter's experience with success is very indicative of how success works in this world of ours, both in its good points as well as in its not-so-good points. I think Peter's story, it could be told millions of times over every year in what success can deliver to our souls and what it can't deliver to our souls. Let me explain. 
And to do so, I want to share with you two points, two very clear, easily understandable points that will hopefully help you and I understand the purpose and power of success as well as how you and I can choose to go beyond our success in forging the kind of identity that your soul is truly after. And so I only have two points today. Here's the first thing you need to know, and that is that you and I are wired... I'm telling you, from birth to find some satisfaction in our success. But we are wired to find some satisfaction in our success. Let me begin before I go any further today by defining the term before us success so that we all can have an intelligent conversation about this. Here would be a good working definition of success. Success is excelling in an endeavor. It's an achievement based on a reasonable goal. This is a great definition of success. I got this from the Jamie Rasmussen Common Sense Dictionary. <laughs> it's true. I, I sat in my office this week and I thought, well, how would you define success? And I thought, well, it's excelling in an endeavor. It's an achievement that you and I have in our lives based on a reasonable goal. And then I looked it up in Webster's and I'm very, very close but I like it better the way that I said it here. You see, success happens whenever you and I set out to do something and we do it. You and I set a reasonable goal, a goal that will take some work to achieve, and we move toward that goal, and if we reach it or even get close to it, what do we do? We claim success. And it happens all the time in almost every arena of life, whether it's your work, your hobbies, your parenting, your marriage, your friendships, you name it. The pattern is all the same. If we excel in one of our endeavors, if we achieve our goals, that's the essential nature of success. And what you need to know is that we're thinking right because this is how the Bible postures success as well. Uh, tucked away in the Old Testament, in one of the major prophets, the book of Jeremiah, there is a, a, a verse that gives us three kind of markers of what success might look like in this world of ours. And the three markers that Jeremiah gives are the markers of wisdom, and then the marker of might, and then the marker of riches, wisdom, might, and riches. And so for our purposes today, we're going to call these intellectual capital because some of us have experienced great success with our intellectual capital. We'll call might physical strength, again, because some of us have experienced success with our physical strength. And then riches will simply use the phrase wealth creation, which is a common phrase today. And, and I think that those phrases fit neatly with what God reveals in Jeremiah about where success is found. It, it, back in the Old Testament, when they used the word wisdom, it mainly referred to the scholars and the philosophers. Those were the wise men and women of that day. It was right on the cusp of the Greek era when Aristotle and Socrates would be uh, rising to prominence. And so it would not be too much of a stretch to translate this today to those of us who have experienced success with our intellectual capital. 
It's those of you who are teachers, writers, inventors, designers, engineers. Think of all the vocations that require mind share in order to achieve a goal or excel in an endeavor. And when that happens, this becomes one of the markers of success. But then there's some of us who have excelled in our might. Again, back in the Hebrew context, when Jeremiah used this word, might would refer to either a warrior or to an athlete. Again, you're right on the cusp of the Greek era with the Greek Olympic, Olympic games and such. But today, there are those who simply use their body and their physical strength to excel in this world. It's obviously referring to athletes, even to laborers that have learned a craft or a trade, to craftsmen. There's those of you who use your hands and your arms and your muscles, maybe even your mouth, in order to, to make a living, and you've excelled with your might. And then I find this kind of funny. Maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of thought, well, then there's those who aren't really smart and aren't really strong. They just know how to make money. Some of you are really good at that. So, so some of you are just like really successful and, and, and it's not because you're brilliant and it's not because you're strong, you're just kind of have a lot of ingenuity to you. Or maybe you combine your wisdom and your might and you've done really well with wealth creation. This might be business people or bankers or investors. Here's what you need to know. This is really helpful. The Bible tells us this. When you and I excel or have achievement in any or all of these areas, we experience success. And the result is, this is what I need you to see more than anything else, is that we experience some satisfaction in our souls, and this is a good thing. The Bible affirms this. In fact, the Bible affirmed this way before anybody in our secular culture historically ever latched onto this. The Bible told us this way back in Genesis 2. You ready for this? During the creation event, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So I don't know if you've ever asked the question, but why did God confine Adam and Eve to a garden? <laughs> why did he put them in a garden? Well, the answer is simple. He put them there to be productive, to cultivate the garden, to keep the garden, to plant seeds and water it and watch it grow, and then to produce a crop and then harvest the crop. And, and through all of that, Adam and Eve would be working in the garden and they would find some satisfaction in doing that. And fascinating, even after the fall, when Adam and Eve would get kicked out of the garden, this pattern continues. Look at Genesis 3, when God is giving them the curse because of the fall. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, I actually love this verse. Can I tell you why? It tells us why work is so hard for some of us, why success is so hard won. Have you ever found that? It's because God has said it's going to take toil. It's going to grow, but it's going to grow by the sweat of your brow. And many of us get that. 
Don't miss what both of these passages, both before the fall and after, are affirming, guys. It's telling us that as a part of our creation identity to find some satisfaction in our success. The Bible affirms that. It says it's good that you feel really good when you, when you produce or accomplish something. It's supposed to build up your identity. It proves that you can set a goal and attain them. And so here's what's cool about this. Whether it's a plumber connecting pipes or a writer writing a book or a teacher teaching a class or a doctor fixing someone up or a business person sealing that next deal or a Navy SEAL going on a mission or even a Cleveland Browns quarterback throwing another interception, it's all the same. God has wired us to set a goal, to, to, to set an endeavor before us, and to go for it, and to be the kind of people that when we achieve that, we can feel good about our success. We can find some satisfaction in it. Now, I'm going to transition us on right now, because some of you, now that you get this, are really smart. You, you, you've picked up on something that I keep saying, and you wonder what I mean by it, you're saying, you keep saying that we can find some satisfaction in our success. I mean, let's face it, we live in a world and culture today that tries to find all of their satisfaction in success, amen? They do. I mean, our world pretty much stops at this idea of achievement. Our nation stops at the idea of achievement and says, now that you've arrived, hey, that's it. You're there. Eat, drink, and be merry. You got the good life, and, and, and you've arrived, and this is what life is all about. Uh, but God says, no, that's not what it's all about at all. I mean, this is what my, my friend Pete experienced. He had done really good at tilling and cultivating the soil of his word according to Gen or of his world according to Genesis 2 and 3. He had achieved the goals that he had set out to accomplish. A successful career, a nice house with a lot of good cars, a great marriage and family, respectable golf game, and the Tigers had even won the World Series. And he asked himself a very, very dangerous question that some of you have asked before as well, and you know how dangerous it is. When he reached all of his goals, when he experienced the success he had set out to accomplish, he asked himself, what more could I want? What more could there be to this world? And he asked that question because there was an emptiness inside of him, even in light of his success, that he thought should be a fullness. There was a thirst rather than a satiation when it came to his success. And I'm guessing that he's not alone, that many of us, could tell a similar story that we've realized intuitively. I don't know your story, but I'm guessing you've realized this. I hope you have. You've realized intuitively that even when you're successful in life and on its best day, it can deliver up some satisfaction to your soul, but it can't deliver what you want it to deliver. Only God can do that. You know, this is what Jesus warned us about 2,000 years ago when he told a power-packed little story in Luke chapter 12. Let me read you this story. I love this. Jesus is so good at telling simple 
but really pointed and powerful stories. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant, abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. So take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. You see, here's what you and I, living in the 21st century here in Phoenix or Scottsdale or wherever you're from, if you're watching online, need to come to grips with. And that is that most likely we live in a place with a lot of barns, and our barns are full. And so at least here in Phoenix, many people move to the desert, build a custom home, secure a golf membership, buy a $3,000 bike, take a day trip to Sedona, eat at nice restaurants, go to the car show, walk around the Phoenix Open. Honestly, what we're doing is we're living exactly what Jesus said. We said to ourselves, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The only thing we add is, and then put a good life bumper sticker on your car. That's the only thing that we add to this. And we're living out exactly what Jesus warned us about. Because one day, and this is going to happen to all of us, I love how Billy Graham once said it. He said, death is the most democratic experience of life. We're all going to get a chance to participate. And so he's right. One day, our life will be demanded from us, and we're going to be asked by our maker, who will get what you prepared for yourself? Essentially, God will be asking us, what more do you have to show for your life on earth? Tell me there's more than just full barns and a life of leisure. Please tell me that your precious identity was not stolen by your success. And that's what God is going to ask us someday if we're not careful. And here's the good news. Our, our identity doesn't have to be stolen by our success. There's more that God offers us. You know, I actually tricked you a little bit earlier. Some of you caught it right away when I shared with you on the board here the three markers of success that the Bible gives us tucked away in the Old Testament, that of wisdom and might and riches. I, I didn't explain to you very intentionally at that time the needed and full context of precisely how the Bible postures these markers. In other words, I didn't show you how the Bible presents these three markers in light of what else you and I are wired to achieve. So let me do that right now. The passage I was referring to is found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. God is actually speaking. He's talking to Israel during a very difficult time in their existence. And let's read together. You follow along as I read what God Says, And you're going to notice those three markers here, but it's kind of in a different light than how we originally presented them. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Now, one of the first things you will notice 
being said in this passage here is that in an ultimate sense, we are not to boast. God uses that word here five times in two verses. We are not to boast in our successes that would come through intellectual capital or physical strength or wealth creation. Again, to be clear, and you got to hear this, gang, it's not that these things are bad or wrong in and of themselves. I did a word study this week, and it took a long time, on wisdom, might, and riches. In the Old Testament, those words appear over a thousand times between them, and many, if not most of them, are in positive, life-affirming contexts. So I can safely tell you, as we've already established, that God has wired us to be men and women who are all about intellectual capital, physical strength, wealth creation. He affirms that these are good things. But what he's saying here is that you and I are not to boast in them. We are not to find our ultimate satisfaction, our core identity in them. If we do, they're only going to let us down. When the car door shuts and we are left with the quietness of our soul, they will not be enough to forge the identity that our souls want and that God wants for us. No, what God says is that we need to shoot higher and that we need to lift our sights beyond and above our human-based successes. And this is point two of only two points that I have for you today. And so let's honor it right now. And that is that we are wired to find our ultimate satisfaction in God. So this ain't complicated, guys. We're wired to find some satisfaction in our success, but if we're not careful, our success can steal our identity because we are wired to find our ultimate satisfaction in God. And I love how God puts it. Look again at verse 24. He says, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Whoa. This is rich. That word understands in the original Hebrew simply means to mentally comprehend something. God is saying he wants you to intellectually understand some things about him. But that word know, because God could have just said, I want you to understand me. But then he says, I want you to understand and know me. This is the Hebrew word yada that literally means to know something through experience. To know something or someone in an intimate, personal way so that you can say, I have experienced that person. So if you're married here today, I hope that you don't just understand certain things about your spouse, like they are male or female, and what their age are and what town they were born in and all the facts that surround their life. I hope you could say that I know my spouse, Amen. I hope you would say you know your children, that you know your best friend. Because what God says is he doesn't want you just to understand certain intellectual things about him, though you need to do that. He wants you to, to know him. And what is it that we're supposed to know about God? There's a lot of things the Bible says, but this is a really good summary here that's richer than most people realize. He says, I want you to know and understand that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. 
That word loving kindness, many people don't realize this. This is going to be new to even to some of you veteran Christians. That word loving kindness in the Hebrew is the closest corollary to the New Testament version of grace that you can get in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and it's a very similar word to the New Testament word grace or charis in the Greek. And the reason that's so rich is that we all know that grace is undeserved love. It's undeserved favor. And so what God is saying here, even in the Old Testament, is I'm the kind of God that loves to lavish my love and kindness upon you when you least deserve it. When you are not being good, when you are not being what I thought you would be, God is loving and kind. Even the Old Testament affirms that. So we see the same word used in Ruth chapter 3. You'll love this when, when Boaz and Ruth are hooking up, you know, and, and Ruth chooses Boaz to be her husband. And, and, and Boaz is much older. I mean, it's an awkward scene if there ever was one in the Bible. Some of you people that married younger love this verse, but, but it's awkward nonetheless. And, and, and so Ruth chooses Boaz, and Boaz says, using the word hesed, he says, you have shown me loving kindness by not choosing Another man that would be better looking and younger and all of this, you have chosen me. But you've chosen me because you have chosen to love me, not because of any merit that I bring to the table. And then the same word is used in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. This is another great context. You guys know the story of Jonah where God told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites because he didn't want to destroy the, the Ninevites and wanted them to repent and turn to God. And Jonah said, I don't want to do it because if they do, then you're going to show that you're all nice. And, and, and I don't want to see you being nice because I want these people to burn. That's essentially what the book is about. And, and, and so as you know how the story goes, Jonah ran from God and then God swallowed, got him swallowed by a whale. He was spit up on dry ground. He said, okay, I get it. I'm going to go tell the Ninevites to repent. He goes and tells the Ninevites to repent. And what do the Ninevites do? Say the word with me. They repent. And, and, and then God relents on his calamity. And then in Jonah 4.2, it's really fun. Jonah's throwing a pity, pity party. And he says, I knew that you would do that, God. I knew that you would be hesed that you would be loving and kind and, and, and relent on the calamity that you promised you'd do on the Ninevites if they repented. Again, it shows God's grace all throughout the Old Testament, the word loving kindness. But then notice more quickly that God follows that up with justice and righteousness. And this word justice literally means, well, let's go first righteousness. Righteousness literally means that God has a standard of right and wrong and that that standard is inviolate. It's the Ten Commandments. It's written in stone. It's way beyond the Ten Commandments. God has a standard of right and wrong and he's willing to mete it out in justice. <laughs> I mean, it scares and bothers a lot of people, but here's the best way to say it. God cares about every act of injustice around the world, whether personal, communal, or national. He cares about it all. He cares about what's going on in the Sudan. He cares about what's going on, well, historically in Bosnia. He cares about what's going on in the Middle East. He, he cares about every single act of injustice in this world. He cares about our nation and what's going on in our nation. He has a standard of right and wrong. It's core to his being. And here's what bothers people, and that is that God has said wrong is to be meted out and punished, and right is to be highlighted and rewarded. It's what people bothers people about God. They want God to be just. They just don't want him 
to actually follow through with his justice. But God says, I am so perfect, I am so good, I am so holy, I can't even be in the presence of sin. It's a stench in my nostrils. And someday, some of it happens now, but some of it will happen when God finally does a curtain call and breaks into this world. He says, well, he breaks into this world, but breaks into it in a final way when he says that I will mete out every wrong and every sin that has not been forgiven will have to be in hell. The Bible's really clear on that one. And again, I've been doing this for years, guys. Some people say to me, well, that's just not fair. Why would God be so harsh? Why would he be that way? See, here's the problem with that line of thinking is that when you really are thinking clearly, you wouldn't want God to be any other way. I mean, the whole basis of Western civilization of our nation was founded on a standard of right and wrong. It's the only way civil society could ever get along. And we based that originally, at least, on the Bible and on God. And would you want God to be any other way? Would you want God to turn a blind eye to rapists? Would you want him to turn a blind eye to genocide? Would you want him to, to look at what Hitler did and say, well, he didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, let's just forgive him. No, you don't want God to be like that. You want God to be a God of justice and righteousness. It's just that you don't want him to be that way with you. That's what really is happening here. And here's the amazing thing about God. And some of you have not caught this up until this point right now. God combines his loving kindness his justice, and his righteousness in a perfect way that no human ever could. If you and I are having a cup of coffee today and, and I said to you, do, do you know some people in this earth that are really uh, loving and kind? You would tell me what, yes or no? Yeah. Like you'd say, man, there's this guy in my life that's just so positive and he's always reading Zig Ziglar books and he listens to Joel Osteen sermons and he's like really positive and uplifting and I just love being around him. He's just loving and he lets everything go. But then if I said, okay, now that I understand that guy, is that guy also really good at justice? What would you say? Probably not. Because we have people in our lives that are really OD on the loving side, but when it comes to actually having a standard and holding people to that standard in a just and tough way, they don't tend to do it. But then if I said to you, do you have people in your life, however, that are really righteous and just, what would you say? Yeah. We all have people like that. I call them the tough nuts. It's those that are, you know, they watch Fox News and get angry. We have people like that in our lives. Who, who just, they, they're constantly about justice and righteousness. And by the way, that's a good thing. I like them. It's just that if you say, are those people really ever loving? What's the answer to that? Not usually. Sometimes, but not usually. And so we have people in our lives that are either loving and kind or either just and righteous, but very few are both. Even most Christians fall on one side or the other except one, Jesus and God. See, we're going to talk about this more next week, but here's what God does, and it blows my mind. God says, I'm going to be so committed to justice and righteousness that I am not going to fudge an ounce when it comes to even your life. I'm going to hold you accountable for every sin, every mistake, every error, whether intentional or not, that you have ever committed in your life. That make you a little hot under the collar, doesn't it? Everything. 
I'm going to hold you accountable for every one of those things, and you better have an answer for them because I am perfect. I am holy. And again, sin is a stench in my nostrils, and I cannot even be in the presence of sin, any of it that lives in you. And humanity looks back and God says, I mean, who could be in your presence then? What, what in the world could we do? And that's when God says, but I am loving and kind. And I'm going to send Jesus Christ to this earth. And he's going to bear your sin upon himself on that cross. And he's going to take the penalty for your sin upon himself. And if you but embrace him through faith, if you trust in his atoning work for you, then when I look at you on that day of judgment and say, what account can you give for your sin? Your only answer is going to be Jesus. And you have now found the perfect combination of God's loving kindness that doesn't fudge on his justice. And here's the deal, gang. Nobody on earth could have thought of that. Nobody could be still committed to justice and righteousness, but also loving kindness and grace, but God. And that's what the gospel is all about. We're going to talk more about that next week. And so what I need you to see as we wrap this up here today is that what Jeremiah 9 is telling us, now this is the point of all of it, is that this is where God wants us to find our ultimate and core identity. That when you ask the question, well, if not success, where should I find the ultimate sense of who I am? It's not in our worldly successes, but it's in understanding and knowing God. In understanding and knowing everything from his grace and loving kindness to his justice and his righteousness. And finding your soul settling in that. Settling in him. And maybe now you can understand why I said it's so important earlier that you don't just know this. You know, one of the things that scares me so much about church people is that they all know this in like an intellectual, cognitive way, but I wonder if you know it in an experiential way. I wonder how many of us have truly in our souls said, I have felt his redemption. I have felt his forgiveness. I have experienced both the weight of his holiness and wondering how in the world could I ever get to heaven, but also I've experienced the freedom of his loving kindness. You see, what scares me sometimes is that we believe the right things. I just wonder if our hearts and our wills have ever caught up to that. <laughs> because it takes all of who you are engaging in all of who he is for your identity, your identity to be cemented in him. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is getting at. Let me finish the service out because we're just about out of time. In fact, we just ran out of time by telling you the end of Peter's story. Uh, Peter, in 1984, had that experience where he shut the car door and the emptiness hit him and success didn't deliver like he thought it would. And he started a search back in 1984. And he took the risk to go to a church. And in Detroit at that time, there weren't too many options of like, you know, really good churches. So I don't even know how this happened. He chose a little Baptist church near his home called Ebenezer Baptist Church. Not the most scintillating and enticing name to go to a church. And yet the associate pastor at that church was a young guy about 24 years old named Jamie Rasmussen. And the senior pastor was this really fiery guy right out of Dallas Seminary named Kevin Butcher, who we've had speak here. 
And Peter came to our church and he started seeking the Lord and it didn't take too long for God to find him. He would say he found God, but we all know better. God found him and he accepted Christ as his savior. And it was fascinating because for nine years I journeyed with Peter there in Detroit and he was still, again, on top of his field, vice president at that time of DDB Needham, which was one of the great advertising firms of the day. And, uh, and, and Pete initially tried to do what so many of you guys do. He said, well, I'm a Christian now, and I want to help market the church. I want to take my success and my, my great skills, and I'm going to help you guys become better and great. And I can remember thinking at that time, I'm not sure that God wants us to market the church. I mean, this is an organic community that's all about loving people in the name of Jesus and word spreads naturally on its own and all of that. So we listened to his spiel. He actually gave us a thing about this big and, and he did help us change the name of the church. That was probably his great contribution in the early days. He said, this Ebenezer's thing has to go. And I said, well, that isn't the Bible, but okay, you know, and, and that type of stuff. And we named the church Grace Community Church back in 1991. Peter helped us with that a lot. But as he grew and as he realized that success wasn't going to deliver, this is an amazing story, he eventually changed the way that he viewed his church. Grace Church, this is a different story, but went through a, a very difficult church split back in the year 2000. It was after I had left. And, uh, and Kevin left Grace Church. It's a long story, but when he left Grace Church, he decided to go do what his heart really desired, and that was to start an inner city church in Detroit. And so Kevin went down to one of the roughest parts of Detroit, Jefferson Avenue, and, 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 he, and he started a church called Hope Community Church. Pete decided that we don't need to market the church anymore. He decided to go with Kevin down into the inner city. And so here's this guy who owns a mansion in Gross Point, and says to his wife, we're going down to Jefferson Avenue and we're going to do church there. And by the way, we're going throughout the week. We're going. I called Pete this week to ask him if I could share a story. This is going to blow you away. He said, uh, yeah, go at it. And I said, what are you doing now? He said, I'm on the deacon board at Hope Church. And he said, and Kevin, as you know, is going into writing and speaking and I'm now head of the search team to find our new pastor. And I didn't say this, but I thought, so much for marketing the church, huh? And, and, and to see him develop his core identity around understanding and knowing me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on this earth, for in these things I delight. A guy like that is my hero. And I'd love to think that as we move on as in church, that you could be somebody's hero. But your identity has to be in him. Your identity has to be beyond your successes, knit closely to the Lord and who he is for you, that you understand and know him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your mighty and powerful word. And I thank you that your truth, as the book of Hebrews tells us, has the power to divide joint and, and, and marrow. It's a, a powerful thing, Lord, that can penetrate our hearts and our minds. And I pray, God, that as we each give a lot of thought, hopefully this week as we wrap this up next week to what an identity in you is really about, what it truly means to understand and know you, that Lord, at the very least, this week we might drop our guard, that we might stop with all of our silly excuses as to what's holding us back, and Lord, that we might be prepared to take a further step, a necessary step 
of following and trusting you, whether it be salvation for the first time or a new level of our growth and walk with you, God. Prepare us even this week for what we're gonna talk about next week. For now, Lord, may it ring in our ears that we will not let the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might or the rich man boast of his riches, but that him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's our heart's desire. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.